0: Hello, and welcome to the Parental Advisory Movie Podcast. We are your hosts, Jeff Ball and
1: Patrick Terry. We're two dads with a love for movies.
0: Join us as we discuss movies we have seen with our kids, as well as movies we have seen without them. Hello, Patrick. How's it going? Pretty good, Jeff. How are you doing? Doing good. I'm putting my, I'm trying to impress people voice just like I did the last time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to make it sound professional. It's not quite working. Boy, do we have a great treat today, right? Yes. Uh, As we have previously discussed, we're doing a summer movie, summer book club thing, (laughs) event, I don't know, whatever. This summer, we're trying to have guests on that have written books about movies that that share our love of movies. Today, we have such an amazing guest, and I've been extremely excited to have on uh Well, I'll get more into it. Our guest is Sean Levy. He's an author whose credits in credits bibliography because they're books. I'll get there. I think credits because it's movies uh <laughs> include <laughs> Dolce Vita Confidential, The Castle on Sunset, Rat Pack Confidential, Paul Newman Alive, The Nero Alive, King of Comedy, The Wife of Jerry Lewis in on the joke the original queens of stand-up comedy and many many more folks let's welcome sean Weavey. sean thank you for joining us what a treat happy to be here thank you thank you oh my gosh so <laughs> kind of a quick uh not <laughs> so something interesting so I don't know what anybody else is doing March of 2020, but you know, I think we were all just kind of going about things. And then all of a sudden something weird in the world kind of happened and uh, things changed. So things we normally got to do, uh, we didn't really get to do anymore. So we're having to find different things to do. I ended up uh, having more time to, where I couldn't read, but I couldn't listen to things. So I went on a search for something really interesting to listen to in the form of an audiobook. And the audiobook I chose was The Castle on Sunset, to which I was hooked from the beginning. It was like a beautiful history lesson of a property. <laughs> like it's not even about a, any certain one person, it was about a building essentially, but a building that has that is seeped in so much history and fascinating, fascinating stories. And I was hooked and there'd be a few things here and there that I might miss, but I just absolutely loved it. And then began with the Paul Newman book, like right after, cause he's one of my favorite actors. And so I was like, this is just, this is great. I've just found it me a new author. So it's like, this, this is amazing. Like I was fast. I was, very excited. So then fast forward to this past March. Uh, my family and I for spring break went out to California, uh, went out to Los Angeles. They had never been. I had been in 2019 for like 48 hours. And then uh, before that had been like 30 years. So this time I we didn't have necessarily an itinerary, but I had places I wanted to go. And then I went and actually got my copy of The Castle on Sunset. And then was reading it on the airplane, and I—I I don't know if you're pro or against uh, <clears throat> as a writer, people that highlight in books.
2: Uh, but for I, me,
0: I, yeah, I'm tough on books. But for me, I'm—I'm I'm one of those people. I treat it like it's like it's a textbook. Like things I find absolutely fascinating, I will highlight the heck out of. And half of this, the majority of well, a lot of information in this book is highlighted because I'm just one of those people that if I see something really cool or something I might want to go back, like, where did I read that? I can go check all the highlighted areas. It might take me a minute, but I can get there. So on the airplane ride out was reading the book. Um, You know, I was telling my, I was telling my uh, 11 year old son about interesting facts about this place. And, you know, and as well as my wife. Um, And so we made, we Uh, I I was like, we have to at least drive. We had, I said, probably won't be able to go in. I said, but we have to at least drive by it. I at least need to get my picture taken with it (laughs) at the very least. And uh, it was, I, when we drove by, we, I almost drove past it because reading in the book, and of course, I'm reading early, you know, early to early 1900s. it's on this dirt road and it's on this big giant hill. I'm like, okay, I'm looking for the street to turn up, to go up this big hill to go see it kind of tucked away. (laughs) Damn near drove right by it. Like, Oh no, that was it right there. So I had to turn around and come back. (laughs) Cause again, I was expecting to go up this big hill because of the way it was tried. I'm like, yeah, I guess things have kind of changed in a hundred (laughs) years. So, uh, Anyways, that's kind of my story on at least as far as when it comes to that, uh, the chateau. And it wasn't that I we didn't go in, but I did, uh, we didn't go in, but I did actually. We drove around it, I parked across the street, got my picture with it. Arabelle stayed in the car because it wasn't as interesting to them as it was to me to have as heart didn't hold as big a place in there. Like, I'll just, all right, just let us know where you're done. Thanks. It's <laughs> like, no, 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 but you don't understand because, and then, uh huh. <laughs> like, you guys are no fun, no fun. So, for me, one of my, you know, uh, kind of, I guess, backtrack, get to a, like an actual question. Growing up, what was your, where did your love for movies begin growing up as a kid?
2: Well, my dad was a big movie buff and um, he liked to, you know, sort of give me an education in effect. I I, I don't know how calculated this was on his behalf, (laughs) but he, you know, I grew up, I'm born in 1961. So most of my childhood, there was no cable TV, no VCRs. You might read about a movie and it might be 10 years before it played in your town or on TV, cut with commercials you know, it was hard to see things. So my dad was, was you know, keen on, on that. He would say, oh, uh, Red River is going to be on Channel 9 at 10 o'clock tonight. So if you do your homework and take a nap, I'll, I'll wake you up and you can watch it with me. And, you know, he introduced me to movies in that fashion. And we saw movies in theaters together. Um, But mainly he was my guide to sort of golden age Hollywood. By the time mm-hmm. I was old enough to make my own choices about movies. We're talking the early 1970s and and Hollywood is changing. Um, Over the years, I've always been asked, what's your favorite movie? You know, being a film critic and film historian. And I always have a ready answer, which is Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And it's a great movie. Roman Polanski, Jack Nicholson, Robert Town. You know, uh, everything about that movie is kind of exquisite. But really, in my mind, the reason it stands out is because I was about 13 or 14 and saw it with my dad and we disagreed about it. He thought it was very cynical and he was disturbed by the ending. (laughs) And I was like, no, man, you know, he grew up in a different era. I grew up watching assassinations and war and protest. Mm -hmm. And to me, yeah, there's corruption Mm -hmm. and people die. Yeah, Yeah, that seems right. And. You know, it was great because years later he said, you yeah, know, that, that really is a great movie. I was like, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was my, that was the seed of my passion watching movies with my dad and, and you know, learning about, you know, great movie stars and great films from him. That's interesting. Um, Cause
0: what you said, I mean, kind of resonates. It's it, it really is interesting when you, talk to people about what their favorite movies are and of course people i mean people ask i'm sure they asked patrick they asked me too what's your well what's your favorite movie since you love movies i was like well that's unfair because you can have a favorite movie in each different genre i mean yeah well you think the best movie of all time is i go well all right i can tell you we're all going to disagree because everybody's gonna have their own opinions i said i said for me it's going to be casablanca Whereas others, it'll be Citizen Kane or The Godfather or something like that. And that's everybody has their own reasons why they love those movies and think it's the greatest movie of all time. I love The Godfather, but I can't, I don't find The Godfather as rewatchable and as just have a breeze about it. Let's say maybe Casablanca. Citizen Kane just seems so heavy. At least there is humor in Casablanca, whereas you know some others maybe not as much so for me i always say casablanca is probably the best movie isn't my favorite movie no because i don't because there are again other movies that i find they are even more rewatchable and more fun to watch but that's still like one of my favorite movies and uh i had a a wonderful influence of my grandfather on my mom's side or it'd be her dad my grandfather and you know uh this story has been told a couple of times, but like my parents got divorced and my grandfather who lived in Kansas city would send me and my brother care packages to Dallas and on channel 41, I think I remember it clear as day every Sunday, they would have a Sunday matinee and they would show an Abin Costello film and he would record having two, two of two onto a VHS tape. And then every month, every two weeks to a month, he would send a care package. And then if I liked it, he would just keep sending them when they'd have a different one on like him. Him and I ended up getting to where we wanted to have the entire collection. So uh, and then he would start sending me old time radio too, oh, nice. everything. So for me, my favorite one of my I mean, probably one of my favorite movies is Abbott, Abbott Abin and Costello meet the killer, because it's it's one of those I could just watch over and over again. I've seen it so many times, but I enjoyed every single time. And there's even stuff now when I rewatch, cause I probably rewatched it, I think a week ago just for kicks, just to have something on, I put it on. And even now I'm like, I'm now noticing like choices in the way, Bud Abbott stands at a counter and why he does, does a certain look a certain way. Like I've gotten to where I'm rewatching And that's what I'm paying attention to <laughs> now is that sort of thing. And not what's actually the overall mm-hmm. thing in the picture.
2: The, well, the movie I've seen the most, the most times from mm-hmm. beginning to end is Casablanca. Although since I've done some university teaching over the years, and there are some movies mm-hmm. I've shown class after class, right? That I've seen so many times, but it must've been about the 20th, 25th time I saw Casablanca that I noticed something that was staring me right in the face the whole time in the final scene at the airport the mm-hmm. car carrying Bogart, Claude Raines, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Henride pulls up at the hangar, and they all four get out on the passenger side of the car. That's wow. not how people yeah, get the, out of cars. No, no, the, no. It's how a director gets people onto this uh, camera faster. Yes. You know, instead of having guys get out and walk around the car. And it makes no sense logically, but it makes yeah. sense sort of cinematically. Cinematically, I mean, yeah. At least, you know, in the sense of I once heard Casablanca described as um, the, the story is thin ice that the director had to cross quickly. And I love that <laughs> because you see it right there. He's yeah. Like, Don't yeah, let yeah. People think about this. Get it moving. Get it moving. You know, and it wasn't the Michael Bay type of get it moving. It was, you yeah. know, a 1940s analog. But like I'm saying, 20 odd times I had watched this movie with my eyes. I think I'm a pretty good watcher. Yeah, there's something I'd never seen before, and now every go time back. I see it, I'm like, "What the heck?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in, in a 21st century movie, they would have to have a line of dialogue explain, "Oh, the door doesn't there's... work. Let me get on on your side." Yeah, <laughs> it would be like longer than if someone yeah. actually got out and walked around. Patrick, uh, what are your, what are your favorite and bests? Because those um... are two categories, right? Favorite and best.
1: Well. I don't really have a favorite because it's hard to choose one, but a movie that I've watched a lot. It's not probably not the best movie, but um, the summer it came out, me and my friends, we watched the water boy. I'm saying water boy, like over and over. That's the one that I have. I've watched the most, even though I know it's not the best movie, but every time I watch it, I think I watched it once last year and I still laugh at everything. Oh, that's. And, cool. um, yeah. And um not as far as what I think is the best. I don't know. There's so many new ones coming out. It's hard to say, you know, I don't, I don't I consider myself more casual when it comes to movies, so I'm not as technical as far as picking out a lot of things. I've kind of more of a overall. Was I interested in the movie? Am I not looking at my phone or worried about what's happening outside the world? Am I locked into the story? But um, yeah, Waterboy is one I watched
2: the most. <laughs> I mean, that tells you something. A movie that's, that's your comfort food, it, it hits some sort of chord in you. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, gr- growing up, uh, Clue and the Burbs, probably. Clue and the Burbs. Well, yeah. I have, I have <laughs> an embarrassing one simply because of the age I was when it mm-hmm. came out. I think the movie that I've seen from beginning to end, again, not counting the ones I've mm-hmm. used in classes, um, the most in theaters... The most in theaters, it's going to be uh, Diamonds Are Forever. The okay. The James Bond movie. Yeah. The, the next to last one with Sean Connery. Yeah. Simply because I was about 10 or 11 when it came out, and my parents were like, yeah, yeah, you can go to the movies. So me and my friends went to go see James Bond again, and I probably saw it like eight times the summer it came out, 12 times, I don't know how many. Stayed, yeah. watched it twice, even though we'd seen it like six times already. Right. So, you know. Is that- it's with Is that um, the one
0: with uh, Telly Savalas as Bluefield? No,
2: no, no. It's um, which one? it's set in Las wrong. Vegas. It right. Has, uh, um, Jill Saint John and mm-hmm. uh Natalie Wood's sister, um, are the uh, are the Bond girls. Bond girls. Yeah. It's got Jimmy That's Dean, that... country singer, as as a yep. casino owner. <laughs> country singer right. and sausage magnate.
0: Yes, sausage magnate.
2: Yep. Um, but, you know, that's the life is like, there's the movies yeah. you've seen the most. There's your favorites. Yeah. There's the ones that, you know, like Citizen Kane is a perfect example. You have to admire it. Yes. It's cold. You don't yes. love it. And if someone loves it, God bless them. But mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a hard love. Cause I don't know if it uh, loves you back.
0: Exactly. I, I've grown to admire it more as I've gotten older. And that's one thing I've noticed as i get older with certain movies i tend to respect i will say respect them more for yeah, their accomplishments and- of what they were able to do during that time when they made it
2: and that's a debut film yes you look at most debut movies you're not looking at arguably the greatest movie ever been. right you're lucky you know i mean there's a couple of filmmakers who really their debuts even even in recent decades mm-hmm. um uh the, the the lives of others the german film that won a foreign film oscar was a mm-hmm. debut film um the shawshank redemption was a debut film yep. but you know debut films of that caliber sorry, are you know you see a debut film it's, and usually it's like a small intimate thing you're right non, you know non-familiar actors and mm-hmm. orson wells just just blew the lid off everything yeah. i mean people okay. made yep. movies differently all around the world after that
0: yeah and just uh I mean, his acting was like outstanding, but really just the technical aspect of yeah. what all they were able to accomplish. He was about from a,
2: 24, just, also. This yeah.
0: God, like. I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 24.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I did worth at 24 except becoming dad is worth remembering. I'm, right. I'm confident in that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I couldn't. Yeah. I was still trying to figure out, like, I was still in college trying to figure out, I need to do something. Okay. When am I need? Well, I was going to do a movie. Well, I can't really do that now because things have kind of changed. Okay, well, let's do this. Well, you know, at least have a job. You know, like, but yeah, to make a masterpiece like that at twenty, at twenty four is, I, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And you know, things I kind of think about too. So I just watched. Uh, when this gets released, we'll we will have, uh, or at least I will have talked about the new Elvis movie that I took my son to go see, and he, surprisingly, he wanted to go see it. And just, I mean, I kind of grew up on Elvis a little bit because of my mom and really, you know, my mom liked him, and so it kind of got me into it. So I knew a little, a little bit, but, you know, after watching this performance by this kid, uh, Austin Butler, just outstanding, and just, you know, just watching what happened to him at, you know, an even younger age than 24 and just blowing yeah. up. I mean, talk about revolutionizing things. (laughs) It's just fascinating. One thing they didn't really they touched on a little bit, but they did touch on his movies. Um, I don't know how what how much how much you've looked into like his impact on his movies because I know they're you know, he more or less kind of got roped into them. He wanted to be a I know from at least what I've seen, he wanted to do dramas and that's not what he was getting offered.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. there's a movie he made. There's one that I've watched more than once. I uh, kid Galahad, I believe it's mm-hmm. Michael Ortiz who made Casablanca right. the director. It's got Walter Matthau. He's, he's, he's a young boxer and it's one of the ones that's not, you know, after he comes back from Germany, after his, his time in service, yeah. um, he didn't he didn't there's no movie that you want to watch for more than 5-10 minutes you may like a song in it but the movies themselves are you know not better than sort of like an episode of Love American style or or some horrible TV show (laughs) Poorly made they were you know uh, there's a lot of rushed yeah yeah you know clearly like you know first take good enough you know let's just be out of here before happy hour and, and and you know the audience for them dwindled i mean it's hard to know how to how to have a career when everything you do you're the first yeah um so someone got the idea well we'll make him you know sinatra was a big singing star and then he became Mm -hmm. a movie star we'll do that with this kid but yeah not not the same quality of film sinatra (laughs) worked with great directors elvis did not
0: He probably, Sinatra also had better representation. Elvis had Colonel Tom Parker. Sinatra
2: Sinatra (laughs) went Hollywood, Elvis went Vegas. Yeah,
0: yeah, pretty much. And that kind of, I mean, because, I mean, he has like physically much like, much like, uh, well, I guess he'd be up here for me. Um, Much like Paul Newman had the, had the look for it, but it's, I think, if he had had a better representation to get better roles, he might have, or maybe just
2: even just supporting roles and then get a lead role. But, or just someone who knew the movie business and not yes. someone who right. was into basically personal management, be your yeah. producer. Yeah. So Sinatra was, you know, an employee of Louis Mayer. He understood yeah. the studio system. So when he became an independent, he had, you know, a background. It's like he had been to school studying movie making, so that when he got the reins, he could he he would know the difference between a good script and a bad script, or you know, a competent director and a poor director.
0: Yeah, um, one of the things I found uh, interesting in in uh, Rat Pack Confidential was just the I mean. I've heard stories about like them in Vegas and just the various different uh, parties they had. And it's just, I found it fascinating that, I mean, I always knew that kind of Joey Bishop was kind of on the outside that they just kind of invited him every now and then, (laughs) but it just, it, I mean, I'm like, well, I don't just because I guess he's not as big a party animal as the rest of them kind of were. (laughs) And I, Thought it was still fascinating, just the different, you know, basically, Frank was, you know, he's the one that was in charge. And then everybody just listened to him. And then if they wanted to go off and do their other things, they could, but as long as more or less got the okay. And I thought that was just weird.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that, well, you know, it, it basically, he had an entourage the way so many celebrities, athletes, politicians do. But his entourage happened to be Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, gangsters, uh, members of the Kennedy family. Um, You know, Joey Bishop, uh, there's a sentence somewhere, and I, I wrote the book 25 years ago in Rat Pack Confidential that says, the fact that Joey was there on stage with them allowed them to pretend that it was an act. Right. In other words, they really were that way. But because yeah. Joey Bishop was there, people would say, oh, it's just show business. Joey Bishop's there. It can't be real. Right. <laughs> Joey Bishop was only there to give them the plausible deniability. Like, no, we're not really like partying with Sam Giancana and Jack Kennedy. Oh, yes, they were. <laughs> you know, But Joey Bishop being there, it, could, it had to be a put on because yeah. he was not one of those types of guys. And people knew that about him.
0: So here's an interesting question. Do you think they still would have had the career that they had if they would have had social media like we do now?
2: No, you couldn't. Um, You know, there was a, even the term seems antiquated, a gentleman's agreement between the press and celebrities and politicians not to report on these things. So, you know, there existed pictures of John Kennedy and Frank Sinatra at the sands in January or, I believe, early February 1960, which the public never saw until many years after John Kennedy had been killed, um, because Frank Sinatra was considered, you know... uh, um, (sighs) Who to compare him to today, like you know, like like a pro-athlete or a music music star yeah. who's in trouble, like someone like Pete right. Davidson, like yeah, like someone running for president partying with Pete Davidson and his crew at a Vegas casino, that would not go over. But if the only people you had to um ask don't spread the pictures, are 10 people whose livings basically depend on access to you, you can do that. If it's everyone on earth is suddenly a paparazzo with the means of not only capturing the image, but publishing the image in their pocket. All bets are off. You can't do that. Um, You know, uh, several of my books have been about people with intense need for privacy, or in the case of the Castle on Sunset, Chateau Marmont, the hotel, providing the privacy. And it's a funny job. Show is in the name. Show business. I want to be a star. Well, everyone can see a star. You know, so uh-huh. everyone has to have a personality for the public and their private personality. And then a third personality, which is their performing personality. If you're yeah. an actor, that changes job right. after job. If you're a singer like Elvis or Paul McCartney, it's it's who you are as you release records. But clearly there's Paul on stage, Paul off stage and Paul at home. That's yeah. three people at least, mm-hmm. you know, and and. Yeah that wall of privacy is meant to protect that last person, the person at home. And these days that wall is like, you know, spin. Trans- yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, <laughs> translucent. Yeah. 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 Last week, Tom Hanks, you know, reacted sharply to, you know, his wife being jostled by photographers and, you know, anyone on earth, you know, Rita yeah. was not some, you know, bouncing co-ed, you know, for one thing, she had COVID early on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Know, and, and, you know, she, she, Tom Hanks, I've met him many times. He is as nice as you would think. So for him to blow his, stack off at people they deserved it i'm yeah yeah. i don't i don't need to see the footage oh yeah So you shame on you i don't need to hear the story yeah
0: Yeah. um they were actually in town uh three weeks ago i think uh, for cmf CMF cma fest so and rita performed i'd i saw someone i'm like oh my god they're in town why am i (laughs) at home like i never go downtown but to see the you know one of the best actors at least of my generation
2: yeah, yeah totally decent guy I, yes. I, I met him in context that had nothing to do with movies i'm a, I'm a very right. avid soccer fan and he and his oldest son colin um mm-hmm. when they were making band of brothers in england uh, adopted a soccer team to support aston villa and aston villa happened to be playing an exhibition game in portland and tom and colin hanks came to watch it And because I'm kind of a muckety-muck among the soccer group, I I have a pass that allows me to go onto the field. And because I'd interviewed Tom Hanks many times over the years, I was able to just waltz up to him and say, Tom, it's Sean Levy, and and we start talking. And he just – this is not a showbiz moment. This is like a soccer fan wanting to know, well, how come it's so big in Portland? And how do we get this in other cities? And, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I – you know, get me one of those scarves. Like, you know, he was just like yeah. someone else who'd come to see like, yeah. what it's like, you know, the soccer community in Nashville. Yes. It's, it's a different it is. kind of energy. It's like yeah. a it is. Of a college sport.
0: My, uh, my uh, ex-wife and my son have season tickets to Nashville soccer club. So they're very much, they're part of the roadies uh, club cool. there in town. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So they're very big into it. Um We have, we here have not had a chance to go yet, but we of course fully support. And they are they're. I mean, it's, it, it is, um, if, cause my brother used to play soccer growing up all the way through college and now he teaches and coaches, uh, high school soccer. Oh,
2: nice. Um,
0: yeah. So, uh, he was sweeper and, and goalie. And then when he went to college it, that helped make him more marketable to colleges because he played more than just goalie. And so, uh, he played sweeper more than he played goalie i think um but he got a good even amount so he's uh he's been teaching uh you know these kids how to play and i think they won district i think they won district one year so it was very big deal because they hadn't won in years so
2: you know what's nice about i i don't care for mls Mm -hmm. Uh, it's all it's a whole nother podcast, but right <laughs> American soccer, the quality of the men's game is not very high. Right. That makes it a little more like a grassroots sport, like maybe mm-hmm. hockey or basketball was 60 years ago. Right. Um, and it's a little, con- it's conceivable that a kid could grow up in Portland or Nashville, learn the game from someone like your brother mm-hmm. who grew up with the game himself and wind up playing for his hometown team And that story doesn't happen necessarily in Barcelona or Buenos Aires or you know, uh, but Munich because you know they're looking for the global superstars to play on those teams. Right. Yep. You know, it's fascinating. That's a charming thing about it. This is an American soccer. It's it's high. It's pro. It's major league, but it's still like attainable.
0: Yeah, I and. I mean, that you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's also a little bit safer to be in the audience at <laughs> some of those. You look True. at, you know, some of the games in Mexico and even yeah, places yeah. like there, Argentina you know, there, and some there's, like there's Some there's...
2: ancestral grudges being worked out. <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> get them them them. <laughs> yeah, They're consenting. They're adult. Yeah, you guys agree. beat each other up. Don't hurt any civilians. Go home and, you know, put an ice pack on Yep.
0: Them. <laughs> right, right, right. Try not to get stabbed in the stands. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's. Um, I try playing soccer. I just don't. I don't like to run. I came to oh, find that that's out fairly
1: quickly. That's a I tried.
0: I, the I I could do outdoor a heck of a lot better because there's more stoppage and play and chances to catch my breath. I I I did indoor for one season and decided my brother's a lunatic for wanting to play indoor because there is no stopping. It's just oh.
2: nonstop. A box to box midfielder at any high professional level is running about eight to ten miles in 90 minutes, trying to, you know, being being pushed off a ball, trying to grab a ball. I mean, you can fit okay, an entire NBA court fits in the 18 yard box around the goal. The <laughs> box around the goal, the smallest part of the field. You yeah. fit the entire NBA court or NHL rink in that box. It's 18 yards across that's 54 feet that's why YP- yeah court Wow. yeah crazy <laughs> crazy and there's no hate, substitutes yeah. no timeouts no commercial breaks no two-minute warning yeah. halftime go. minutes you have your orange slices and your energy drink get back out there
0: and <laughs> get back out there <laughs> i love it yeah it's great no it really is and it's it and what i love at least here and i'm sh- sure it is in portland as well but here, the other local teams like the football team and the baseball team, both the uh, Titans and then the AAA baseball team, uh, the Nashville Sounds, big supporters. And the Preds too, the uh, hockey team, big supporters of the soccer team. They go out there, they show up at the games or support them like list. Um, I think they even, I think they, uh, Patrick, do you remember which football player it is? Ended up a uh, Tiki ended up uh, what do you call it, not sponsoring, but uh putting money into it you know oh you invested like, in it Yeah, investing there you go there's the <laughs> oh, word became I mean, an investor so you and know these, i think reese witherspoon and her husband are investors in the team like they're they're wanting to you know make something out of that yeah. so
2: game recognizes yeah. game athletes know when they're looking yes. at something that's hard to do and, yeah. and respect it there's a lot yeah. of um nba particularly Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. Because the NBA is so international, it's the American sport that has been most Mm -hmm. warmly embraced around the globe. There's a lot of NBA players who are foreign born. Yeah, Europe Mm -hmm. and and Asia and Mm -hmm. uh, Africa. They all have grew up playing football or watching it. Hakeem Olajuwon never played basketball. Mm -hmm. Until he was in high school, and he was a goalkeeper in soccer because he got a six nine goalkeeper. That's gonna. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) yeah.
0: Yeah. Get well, it's kind screen. of like, <laughs> yep. Just like our six, nine goalkeeper we had for, for the Preds, um, in uh, Pecorino. So he's, I mean, you get a body like that. It's hard to, <laughs> hard to score, yeah, but yeah, yeah, especially in soccer. Cause it's just <laughs> no, no, you uh, could be Dikemai Matempo. No, 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 not in my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so one of the things I always thought was really cool, Patrick, you'll appreciate this too, in his, in uh, Paul Newman, to life, one of the, I like picking out like little small things that not like, oh, big, big, wild things, but like small little things. So uh, one of the things that I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I'm going to go, you know, when I see York, he'll, he'll appreciate this too, is that uh, Paul <coughs> Newman, uh, Patrick was neighbors with uh, the creator of Green Lantern and they got to be such friends that he actually used paul newman's likeness for hal jordan oh, wow
2: and that, Isn't that was, awesome and that New, cool. newman at that point was a struggling young actor nobody yeah. knew his name he would, they, they lived in an apartment house in staten island or queens mm-hmm. and uh newman had just moved there from yale trying to get some jobs and uh you know newman looked like you know, a Roman coin. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a beautiful man. Look at the, yeah. the picture on the yeah. jacket. Yeah. Um, you know, that book was a, a bestseller from the get go. And I'm certain <laughs> yeah. it's because they put a Hunky Newman of picture of <laughs> on the cover and then released it before Mother's Day. I was like, well, it's you it's, know, whoever did that, i will buy them dinner. <laughs> exactly. True um, story. And you know, he, he was almost too pretty, you know, that was a curse for him. That mm-hmm. he had to people just assumed if you got um, you know, the the the, the privilege of male beauty, you know, gets you places, but then they assume that's all you are, a pretty boy. Really? Yeah. Newman, Newman was a frustrated school football player. He was too small growing up to play high school football. He didn't get his growth spurt until college, and then he got kicked off the football team for some drunken rowdiness um and someone said well come to drama club and because of that drunken fight in a bar in uh, central ohio he became an actor um (laughs) you know he always had to fight that image that he was that the reason he got ahead was because he was pretty so um many of the roles once he particularly got to choose his parts he liked to play scruffy guys he liked to play you know Guys, you know, down on their luck, anti-heroes, uh, no good nicks, crooks, you know. He he didn't like to play the golden boys because that's what right. everyone assumed he was. Yeah. And he wanted to be taken seriously <laughs> as an actor. Right.
0: You well, know? and what I always thought too was interesting is that he was also kind of he had a hard time believing in himself as far like he he didn't have a for somebody that you would think would exude confidence, he kind of struggle with that when it came to his acting because he was harder on himself and because he didn't think people would kind of believe in that he had the acting chops. And you know, so he kind of was like the underdog. So he always kind of also played those kind of roles as yeah. well, which I thought was fascinating.
2: He, you know, my my favorite detail that I found doing the research on that book mm-hmm. was that Paul Newman was a nail biter. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a nail can- biter. Yeah. And I'm teeming with anxiety. And <laughs> Paul, Paul Newman does not look like an anxious man. Paul Newman no. looks like the guy who you could say, this guy has never had a care in the world. And yet yeah. Paul Newman used to bite his nails. Yeah, And that, that just blows my mind. <laughs> you know, he he said that he didn't really learn how to act until the late 70s, early 80s. And at that point, he had been a movie star for 25 years and a multiple-time Oscar nominee. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, um. I, I think the crucial event that changed his uh, attitude toward life and toward his profession was the uh, drug ad- drug addiction death of his son, Scott, yeah. Um, yeah. in the late 1978 or 79. And then you look at the string of movies that Newman is in after that. One of the last movies he makes when Scott is alive, maybe my favorite Paul Newman movie is Slapshot. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's like trying to be a kid, you know, and he's 25 years older than everyone in that movie. And he's just out there (laughs) busting his butt with them. When he made that movie in Pittsburgh, um, the production rented a big house for him to stay at in the suburbs and all the other young actors who were playing the hockey players, most Mm -hmm. of whom were hockey players of some stripe were staying at the holiday inn. So Paul only stayed at the big house when Joanne Woodward was visiting him on weekends yes. when they weren't shooting, and the rest of the week, yeah. he stayed at the Hollywood Holiday Inn because that's where the party was. But right. Scott died, and he makes the verdict and the color of money and um, absence of malice. Mm-hmm. And the drama and weight of him changes. He's no longer there's a wonderful description of him in John Huston's autobiography. Uh, he calls him Pan, the eternal youth, beloved of the gods. Yeah. That's no longer in him. You know, he starts playing someone gruff and hard in the early 1980s after he suffered that loss. And he also began his charity work and his natural food business after Scott's death, you know, and, and, and the serious car racing after. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing to point to, but you know, you can't think of a more life-changing event on the other. Right. I believe that that was the Paul Newman who half half the man who we love mm-hmm. and respect so much was you know born out of that tragedy, and I think yeah the people I spoke to who were closest to him you know did not like to talk about Scott, but uh, yeah I think they concurred that that was that was a major milestone for him, and I think
0: the closest thing we get to his style i guess or that kind of lightheartedness um prior to that is probably nobody's fool because there's still kind of that weight there but yet there's also kind of a a lovable person that lovable newman that we used to know you know prior you know
2: prior to that yeah 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 oh he could still turn it on yeah and it's just but, yeah, but it's different, has,
0: but it's it's still different though.
2: Yeah, that guy has paid prices that the young Paul Newman did not. There's a there's an exchange yeah. in that movie that is priceless. The bartender at the place where he goes for beers <laughs> is um Margot Martindale, yes, who I love. Great character actress, as yes. she's referred to in Bojack Horseman, character actress Margot Martindale. <laughs> and um now we have a picture of Margot Martindale in our head. We have a picture of Paul Newman, and she looks up at one point and looks at him and says, you know. I've been here for so long. Even you're starting to look good to me. <laughs> and then he says, I do that. I grow on people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Whoever wrote that, you deserve, deserved deserved a, a raise that day. I Richard yes. So the novelist, but you know, God yes. bless. What a great moment. Yes.
0: Um. So Patrick, do you, I don't want to be leaving you out. So do you have anything? Questions or anything you would like to discuss?
1: Uh, as far as your process from writing, I've been yeah teetering around the idea of wanting to write, and I just really don't know where to start. So, um, any
2: tips, <laughs> ideas, or you know? I think just, the main the main thing is just to write. Yeah, not judge it, not not weigh it against like oh, you know, this isn't. Um, uh dickens so it's no good i mean you just gotta write it's like anything else if you wanted to golf you go Mm -hmm. to the driving range and you just hit buckets of balls you go to the putting green and you practice putting you're not going to get on the pga tour in a week you know and it's going to take years you know they talk about ten thousand hours before you can master something and i think it's just um so many of us we have the thought and it's clear, we can say it and it's clear. And then we sit down to write it with a pen or the keyboard and we freeze up. Yep. You know, it's, I think that's a lot of, you know, a lot of us learn to write in school where someone was literally putting a grade on our writing and sure. that, you know, that, that may not be haunting you, but somewhere in your head, Uh, it's there in everyone's head in mine, I sit down, I'm working on books. I've got 12 books on the shelf and I sit down for, to write the 13th. And I'm like, okay, the last time the review said that I had too much of, you know, and and I'm trying to write around that problem, like to make it go away as if there were some ideal form. So let that go and just write, just do it. And, you know, a half a page is good writing. I mean, you know, we we think of a single Shakespeare sonnet as 140 syllables, and they're masterpieces, and we're reading them for like 700 years. So yeah. there's no there's no too short, there's no too long, there's no right, there's no wrong. But you got you got to have button chair, fingers on paper or keyboard, and do it. That's that's the secret. All right, I, I'm deadline oriented. You know, I was a journalist for almost 30 years and. The idea that, you know, if I didn't get this to them by noon on Friday, I wasn't going to get paid that that was that was a good motivator for me.
1: (laughs) I get the money,
2: you know, (laughs) but it also takes some of the joy out of it. You know, Um, when I was a kid, when I was an MFA student uh, writing poems because, you know, that was my form of expression, I would be like, oh, boy. I'm going to sit down and write. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, now I have to get up and write. You know, yeah. so, so That's when it becomes a job, but still it's that same process of, of sitting there. Do I like how it sounds? Yeah. Okay. Put that away. If I'm stuck, write something else. One of the okay. secrets of books is you st- read them from beginning to end, but you don't write them from beginning to end. Not, not nonfiction books the way I do. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm finding something tedious or or you know difficult, I'll say, well, hell, I'll wait until I have more energy for that or until I'm I'm refreshed. I'll write about something else. Yeah. You know, if if I'm if I'm sick of writing about Paul Newman's divorce or I'm you know writing about his his uh, his you know tragedies in his life, I'm, and it's too much. I'll, I'm going to write about the sting today, and you know, yeah. and, and that'll be a happy chapter, and you know. You can you can do that because you know you get to put it together at the end that's true
0: all right so, um Appreciate for me that. patrick when i years ago many many lifetimes ago it feels like when i used to write um i would get i would have a scene play out in my head either because a song would play which it would make me think of something or how like a it's like wow this would be great in the movie and then i would just like have some whole scene play out i would go and then write it down and then just write it out and then at least the outline of it and then i would actually write dialogue and have no idea what the story is about but i would just start picturing dialogue and then whether it was good better it's something and then you can always build a scene around it which then you can build the scene around it and then you can build either the scene before it or the scene after it and then work whatever direction yeah. It's not, it's, it doesn't have like what Sean said, doesn't have to be from start to end. It could be in the middle or in branch out. Just, there's I wouldn't a, say it worked, I wouldn't say it worked for me, but you know, when I was much younger, my writing was also a lot cheesier. So, <laughs> a such as, off. such a, such <laughs> as being young, though. You
2: know? Yeah, yeah. There's an old Hollywood joke a screenwriter every night he, he, he has a dream where he has like, as he's falling asleep, he sees the perfect, movie plot but when he wakes up he can't remember it so one night he, he says okay i'm leaving a pad and pencil next to the bed i'm just gonna write it down and I'll, so he has the thing happen he writes it down he goes back to sleep in the morning he wakes up he's so excited he looks at the pad it says boy meets girl <laughs> <laughs>
0: What a fresh idea. I wonder, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, where do you go from there? I mean, that's kind of says it all. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Mm, no story. Uh, <laughs> oddly enough, my favorite boy meets girl that I, again, by the time this is recorded, I would have already talked about it. Apple TV Plus has Cha Cha Real Smooth. One of my new favorite kind oh. of very lighthearted boy meets girl type
2: of things. It's good to know.
0: Yeah. If if it was main if it would have been made in the eighties, John Cusack would have been in it. Let's put it that way. It's one of those. It's not quite saying anything, and it's not quite. Um, now I'm gonna have a. Now it's going to be the time I had have a memory uh, block. Miles Taylor, Shailene Wendlody, Uh oh, Sweet Raptor. Him. No, no spectacular now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a movie kind of like those, kind of like that. So yeah, it's just it's just light, it's airy something that we haven't had in a while and you know it's no one you know spoiler no one dies so it's not a nicholas sparks movie so it's just fun and i just boy meets girl and that's you know someone came up with that and then went with it and
2: i mean you know it keeps working so
0: yeah (laughs) because everybody needs it and it just updates it because the times change and so why not so um so i had a question too about your process because you write essentially history books but they're just film based um or act i mean actor um like how do you go from hey this is kind of this might be interesting to then doing the research like how do you choose to do like do you just think, well, you know, I like Paul Newman. Maybe I should write a book <laughs> well, or, or, you know, or do you or, you know, or think of, hey, the Chateau Mormont would be a good, you know, a hotel would be a good book.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it, there's there's so many ways because there's <clears throat> there's book writing and then there's publishing. Yeah. And I work backwards from publishing. It's it's how I make my living is getting these mm-hmm. things published. So I'm not writing on spec with the exception right. of the poems that I wrote. Right. Um, so if I come up, you know, um, I finish a book. <clears throat> now it's like, what's next? And I always have a list of things that I'm interested in. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I gather string on some topics for, you know, I wrote a book about um, Rome in the 1950s and the birth of Italian um, yes. post cinema, Dolce Vita Confidential, but it's also yes. about fashion and celebrity and the birth of, and of the biology. war. Just, oh, yeah. And um, I, I wanted to write that book in the 90s, and I did not get to write it until 2016. But over those years, any time I was in a library or an archive doing research, and I you know, maybe had 20 minutes to spare, I'd take a look and see what they had on this. So you begin to realize, okay, what's out there? Is there enough out there to get me the critical mass to write a book? Mm-hmm. The second thing is, is there a hole on the bookshelf where this would book would go, this perspective book. In gotcha. the case of Paul Newman, there had not been a biography. Um, my book came out in two thousand nine. The previous book about him was almost twenty years old at that point. And yeah, it a short dual biography of Paul and Joanne Woodward, as
0: okay,
2: wife. And you know, they had both been very active for all that time. And I didn't think that the existing biographies of Newman really did, did honor to the story. The research wasn't thorough. The storytelling wasn't good. I thought the writing and, you know, critical eye talking about the movies was uh, uninspired. Mm -hmm. So I could make the case. We need a Paul Newman book and I'm the dude. And this is the time. And, you know, several of my books, Newman was one of them, um, kicked around the idea multiple times. And, and, people were like, ah, eh, you know, why uh, Paul Newman. And, and then, you know, I do the book and it's a, a bestseller. So yeah. nobody knows, I don't know. You know, I think, right. all, I think they're all brilliant ideas. And some of them are mm-hmm. so obscure. My agent, who's like my biggest, you know, my, my, my partner and my kids aren't as big yes. as my agent is. and like, <laughs> hey, Maybe just for you. Yeah. What else you got? And, um, you know, so so those two processes: finding out what's out there that I could use, and yeah. then making sure there's a hole on the bookshelf, so that you know, if I want to make a living writing books, the people who hire me have to believe that they're going to make money publishing the right. book to deliver to them. So
0: yeah,
2: we're, they're going to give me we'll make up a number, a thousand dollars in advance, mm-hmm. to write a book. They better believe that when it's all said and done, they're going to make a thousand and one back. Gotcha. Right, and okay. that means that, like you know, I would love to write a biography of Peter Lorre. That would be awesome. How many Peter Lorre books are you going to sell? So, like, if you're, yeah, say if you're a full time journalist, which I was for many years, mm-hmm. that allowed me to, you know, write uh, a more in esoteric kind of book because I had other, you know, I had another job, or if you're a university professor. And you have a yeah. full-time job. You can spend 15 years writing a book that's, you know, going to be published by a small press. And, you know, the income from the book is just going to be sort of like your beer money and not your livelihood. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, you know, I, my is a novelist. She writes what's coming from her heart. Many mm-hmm. of my friends are novelists and poets here in Portland and uh, other places. They're writing from another thing. I'm, I'm, a journalist working with my agent and my editors to find book subjects that are interesting to me, that I think people will want to read, and which I feel like there isn't such a thing. So, the, right. the most recent book I published, In on the Joke, the original mm-hmm. Queens of Stand Up Comedy, we got the idea that, you know, I wanted to write a book about politics and comedy and mm-hmm. how we went from a culture where no comedian told political jokes to a culture where some comedians only tell political yeah, jokes and chips um, and that change happened over a period of time during which we went from having no women in stand-up comedy to a broad range of women in stand-up comedy and I realized that there was no there was no way to learn that story how did women get involved and my I I proposed it as a chapter of a larger book, but my editor said, can you do a book on this? This is the book we want from you, not this other one. And I was like, yeah. And at the time I had in mind a group of women who would be in the book that did not include crucially Moms Mabley and being Nashvilleians, Minnie Pearl. And that was my original conception. The day I got had the conversation with my agent and editor. I was like, oh yeah, I, I see how this works. Phyllis Diller, Elaine May, Joan Rivers. And maybe there'll be like footnotes about these other women who worked in these narrow lanes of showbiz. But when I read about Minnie Pearl and Moms Mabley, I was like, oh my God, these women were absolute monsters and they were inventing something that they didn't even know existed. They thought they were the only one. Moms Mm -hmm. Mabley was performing on the um, black vaudeville circuit to all black audiences in black neighborhoods. Minnie Pearl was at the grand old Opry and and state fairs. Those two never crossed paths until they were, you know, veterans. Um, So each of them thought I'm, I'm the only one out here. And to me, goodness you know to be the only one stand up is tough you stand out there it's the only art form we know where the audience is encouraged to shout you down nobody goes to the ballet and says yeah spin again <laughs> <laughs> but comedians like they have to be prepared to be heckled i i found in joan river's papers like from the time she was still an unknown working in cl- you know cl- uh, uh, clubs in greenwich village Basically for tips, she had sheets of replies to hecklers that she was working up, you know, during in her joke writing sessions. So to do that and think you're the only woman doing it at all, these women are heroes. But yeah, I thought, you know, there's got to be a book that someday someone's going to want to know about Moms Mabley. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find out everything possible. Um, two of the women I wrote about in that book not because of my book are now getting full biographies. Oh, and that's I, great. You know, I think that's sensational. I'm I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to send these these authors like all my research and mm-hmm. my unedited chapters in case there's stuff in there that they didn't know about that we had to cut cuz the book was running long so we cut mm-hmm. a bit of it. But, you know, t- to me filling that shelf and, like, you know, finding the missing people from entertainment history, showbiz history, pop culture history. Um, that's that's my joy. That's awesome. Lucky to make a living at it. Right.
0: Uh, how exciting. Patrick, do you have anything else you want to add? I okay. I have nothing else. <laughs> El- nothing else. Okay. Um, I'm just going to touch on before we, before we close out. I just want to touch on that. I honestly wasn't sure if I was going to like uh, Dolce Controvin- uh, Vita Confidential because it's not really an area that in a period of time that I'm really like super interested in. Um, foreign films I are still something I'm trying to get grasp and get a knowledge of better um, as far as part of my film history. In uh, wording. But I started you know, started, um, started going through it and just finding out, just like you talked about, about fashion, about just the change in Italy post-war and trying to revitalize and finding out how these sisters in fashion basically created a, a whole different thing. I found out Ducati started with an engine on a motor or on a bicycle before they started making motorcycles, like just all kinds of random, very interesting things. And now it's like one of my favorite books. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like, it's just, like, it's just, it's amazing. Cause I do love, I do love history, but I, um, I do find it harder or at least when I was younger, I found it harder to enjoy world history because I had no context for it. Like at least with us history, I could picture, a certain state or having mm-hmm. traveled to it so uh, it's a little bit easier you know has a little more uh, weight to it as far as me uh, wanting to wear it but when it comes I've never since I've not been I haven't been able to travel outside the country yet not for any other reason I just haven't gone um, it's harder for me to kind of picture all that and kind of have a, a, a firm understanding but by Listening to all these various different things going on during this very specific time in Italy, about like you said, about the paparazzi starting up, and then you know, just all these different actresses and actors and directors coming out during this time. And just, I mean, Rome being just a happening place in the 50s is just crazy, and it's where celebrities would go
2: for vacation to get away from Hollywood. <laughs> They were the bad guys in the war. And 12 years later, yes. they were like everyone's favorite. Like everyone wanted yeah. Italian food, Italian cars, Italian clothes, Italian movies. And they were demonstrably the bad guys. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. How, how do just... you pull that off? I mean, my favorite fact that I learned during the writing of that book is Emilio Pucci, the great fashion designer. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes from an aristocratic family in Florence and his ancestors there's a painting of them from about the 14th century. That's the first painting that shows people using a fork to eat. So in a certain sense, this <laughs> food is descended from the people who invented using forks. Forks. How about that? <laughs> well, my that is fascinating. It's an anniversary story. Oh, yeah. Well, my family yeah, yeah. invented <laughs> forks. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a painting to prove
0: it. That's amazing. What if, this is... It made me think of this. My mom um, has been doing the ancestry.com stuff and mm. just find I don't know how she's doing because I don't know how that site works or anything, but she's just she'll randomly just send me screenshots. I want to say it was during it was somewhere in the Scotland or somewhere, and we're somehow descendant of a person actually named Han Solo, and then I forgot the last name. But I was like, wow. I knew it there you go i said so we're descendants of a scruffy looking goat herder <laughs> <laughs> i was like i knew it the force was strong <laughs>
2: Very
0: funny. Uh, but yeah i was like i was like that's hey, a that checks out i i, I believe that 100 but yeah it's kind of like it to me it kind of reminded me of that that's like just like very random but yet very fascinating <laughs> i mean it's no fork but you know
2: no, well, De Niro, when I did work on De Niro, I found, uh, I, you know, I'll do this for anyone I'm writing a biography about. I'll go on Ancestry.com and start going back from their parents, their grandparents. often want to find out when they came to America. And someone tracing De Niro's lineage at some point just took off and, like, assembled this family tree that went back to the Crusades, Wow. And there was a medieval prince in De Niro's family line, like a direct—I mean, it's mm-hmm. like his his twelfth great grandfather or something like right. this. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, yeah. you can tell yeah, yeah. From looking <laughs> at it, you know. Yeah. But I'm saying, you know, that's that stuff just blows my mind. That yeah. that you know, and you think of De Niro as like the ultimate 20th century. You know, he he's only played people alive before. 1900 two or three times and they're not good yeah. movies um but you I mean you're not you wrong is back. <laughs> okay.
0: yeah that's crazy i love that stuff uh, that's amazing sean thank you so much for joining us this is, what a um what a lovely conversation we i i had an absolute blast i learned quite a bit
2: for sure well i appreciate the invitation yeah. and the time yes patrick you keep <laughs> writing there is no that's wrong. That's There's just do or do not. Oh, yeah. Tracy right. but they, <laughs> yep. I
0: understand bad. this. we do. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. Of course. Oh,
2: where can people? Where can people find you? Um, I'm most on of, Twitter. Levy. Them. You know, I, I have the. Uh, I have a an email address that includes my name, which happens to be the same name as one of the producer directors of Stranger Things. Never heard of him. Literally, every day my life, I get email from that guy from the world's children who either want roles or um, want introductions to, you know, Finn Wolfhard and Millie Bobby Brown or have <laughs> complaints about plot twists. Um, but I'm Sean Levy on Twitter, uh, Sean Anthony Levy on Instagram and SeanLevy.com has links to all my books, which are on Amazon and all, you know, wherever, wherever you buy books on tape or on audio or Digital or paper, you can find my stuff. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thanks so much. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our show and have a moment, please rate and review. It helps us out a lot.
1: Also, recommend us to someone that enjoys movies or also has kids. You can find us on Twitter at PA Movie Podcast and on Instagram at Parental underscore advisory underscore movie underscore pod. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Parental Advisory Movie Podcast, and join in on the fun.